Hey there, it's Vanessa. I hope you've been enjoying listening to these stories as much as I've enjoyed making them. If you have, I would really appreciate your help. If you're able to contribute $1 per episode, it would make a big difference. That's because you're not alone. There are thousands of folks listening, so it doesn't take much. Please go to patreon.com slash nocturnepodcast and donate what you can to support the show. You can also get there through our website, nocturnepodcast.org. Thank you. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Why look up at the stars? That seems like a strange question, but it's one that I've started asking myself. I grew up in New York City, and while I did go to summer camp in the country, I don't remember paying much attention to the night sky. I mean, occasionally I would look up and see a sky full of brightly twinkling stars, and I'd think it was pretty, but I just didn't think much about it. Nowadays, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I feel a little silly sometimes when I get excited seeing the faint smattering of stars overhead, because I know that I'm star impaired. There's so much that I can't see because of all the artificial light turning the sky to mud. I'm also embarrassed that it took me so long to realize what I was missing. Much of that realization came when I read Paul Bogard's book about light pollution, The End of Night, and then interviewed him for an earlier episode of Nocturne. I learned that a truly dark sky has turned into a rare thing. This started me on a minor quest. I wanted to see a sky full of stars, unspoiled by light pollution. A really dark sky. And the holy grail for me was to see the Milky Way. Maybe I'd seen it before and not been aware of it, but I wanted to see it and know that I was seeing it. I wanted to appreciate it. So I took my family to Death Valley, a place that's designated an international dark sky park. And as with most quests, there were some trials to overcome. All right, I'm here with my family in Death Valley. I'm in the car recording this. We, we woke up at 3.30 in the morning because we wanted to make sure to get to Death Valley early enough to find a campsite. We drove through a rainstorm, and uh, it took us longer than we'd anticipated because there is an unexpected snowstorm that was predicted to drop about a foot of snow in the Sierras. So every mountain pass was closed, and we took a detour. It took us about 12 hours from Berkeley to Death Valley, but we're here now. There's a sandstorm. I'm not talking a little bit of sand. There are 45 mile an hour gusts. I'm gonna open the door real quick. I don't think I've ever seen the Milky Way, and it's been a really long time since I've looked up at a dark, dark sky and seen a lot of stars. And I've been realizing that I just forget they're there. So rain, snow, sandstorms, not the greatest start to our stargazing trip. I laid on the picnic table gazing up at what I thought were pretty good stars, even though there was a fair amount of artificial light coming from the gas station behind us. I was determined to have a profound experience under this epic sky. 
Kent interrupted the poetic ramblings I was recording. I think Finn and I are just going to go into the tent and go to sleep. I mean, I'm super tired. You're not going to look at these stars? No. So much for profound experiences. Kent and Finn had thrown in the towel, and rightly so. The sand was wearing us down. I eventually climbed into the tent with my family. I was amazed that we fell asleep with the way the tent was being battered around. We woke up in the morning covered in sand, actually permeated with sand, and one of the tent poles was bent from the wind. The next night, we found a much more quiet and dark campsite. The only nearby light was from campfires. Here, the stars were much more visible and impressive, and we sat together looking up at the heavens, talking about what humans have talked about for ages. It's the first time I've ever seen the Big Dipper. What do you think? It's awesome. It really does look like a big spoon. <laughs> More like a giant cup with a giant handle. How many more stars do you think we're seeing here than we see at home? Millions. How do you feel when you look at them? Small. That one right up there is really bright. I wonder which one that is. That could be one of the major planets in our solar system. It's definitely one of the planets. Yeah, there's one that's, that's in our solar system. That's another one that's in our solar system. Only those two that's are the That's Mars still today, I think. See the one that looks red? Is that Orion's belt right there? Yeah. There's that, three stars? Those three bright looking stars are Orion's belt. If you tip your head back over the back of your chair and block out some of the light from our campfire, you can see the band of stars that is the Milky Way. Do you see it, Finn? I don't know where to look. Well, it just looks like a cloud of stars. It's so many stars that it doesn't look like individual stars anymore. It looks like a, as they call it, a milky band. You can see it. You're so lucky. Yeah, it's, it's hard to look at this and not really feel in awe of, like, that there's just this whole other place aside from this land that we stand on. And I don't think about it when I don't see them. It makes me feel sort of seasick. And then also knowing that all these stars that we see are just part of a little tiny galaxy in a bunch of bigger galaxies all mixed together to make a giant, a bigger thing. And it just keeps on going forever. So I have two things that always occur to me when I see stars of this number. The first is that it's hard for me to believe that they're there during the day as well. Nothing has changed except the amount of light in the sky has made it so that we can see what's always there. And to me, there's something really cool about this idea that the stars are revealed by the night sky, but they're not something new or something that only happens half the time. They're there all the time. They're just revealed to us in the nighttime sky. The other thing that I always think of is, I remember when I spent five nights out in the desert by myself, in getting ready to do that, the one thing that scared me the most was not being by myself. It wasn't having no food and only water. What I was really freaked out about before going out was the fact that I was gonna see stars from horizon to horizon. And 
I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that scared me so much. And it was something related to what Finn said, which is that it makes you feel impossibly small, unbelievably small, to see yourself in relationship to so many stars that you realize are stars that have planets circling them that have whole solar systems and some of these specks of light we see are clusters of stars and several solar systems or who knows maybe even we're seeing light from galaxies whole galaxies and it's hard to look up and see that and then understand how incredibly tiny I am as a person on this planet which is only one planet etc etc it's a very existential terrifying thought makes me feel the smallest of the small Think about ants. I mean, like in this entire galaxy cosmos, ants are like atoms. I think on the scale of planets and stars and galaxies, Finn, there's really not too much difference between you and an ant. So where were you saying the Milky Way was? Um. Well, I thought I saw it as a band across here. Not sure now. Even in this dark campground, there was still sky glow from a city a hundred miles away. And the conditions just weren't right. Kent thought he saw the Milky Way, but Finn and I couldn't really see it. I mean, I think I just saw a different galaxy out there. Is our galaxy like a whole? I don't know. This is really going to get me to read more solar system books. I want to learn more about solar systems. Does being out here make you want to learn more? Yes. Very much. Finn saying that seeing the sky full of stars made him want to learn more made me realize that it doesn't make me want to learn more. It's kind of the opposite. Seeing the stars sends me into a more abstract feeling place, where I just dwell in that existential experience of smallness, but not in a scary way like Kent. I kind of like just hanging out in that feeling of floating on a speck in the middle of space. I find it calming. That got me thinking about how seeing a truly dark sky filled with stars can affect people so differently. At one end of the spectrum is the pure feeling approach, and at the other is the quest for knowledge, to make sense of the vastness. In my research about stargazing, I learned about a man who takes this quest for understanding to an extreme. He's a little like a preacher for the cosmos. I kind of fell into a place of being almost an evangelist or a spokesperson for the universe because I want for people to stop often and take a moment and think about it. It's about my capacity at a given moment when people are gathered in a certain place to provide them a deeper, richer experience as they are pondering the grander spectacle of the cosmos and that relentless desire to, I don't know what I convert people to the universe, right? Convert people to an appreciation of what's up in the sky as part of their substance, as part of their reality, not just this abstract thing that's out there in a billion or a trillion or a light year or a giga, whatever, who cares, right? No, I care. And, and you should too. That's Paul Salazar. My name is Paul Salazar. And I write a blog called The Urban Astronomer. He also frequently shares his celestial knowledge on television and radio shows. He gives monthly talks on the top of a mountain in the Marin Headlands near San Francisco, where he uses a laser pointer to point out objects in the night sky and let people know what it is they're seeing up there. 
Uh, this part of the sky contains some very fun objects. I'll use the laser pointer now to point. But this little grouping right here is the top of Scorpius, the scorpion. And in fact, that star, although it doesn't look too bright yet, it's on the horizon there, is the heart of the scorpion. It's called Antares, one of the brightest stars in the night sky. When it gets a little bit higher up, it's going to be rising up like this over the course of the next several hours. Paul's talks up on Mount Tamalpais are followed by what can only be described as star parties, where amateur astronomers have their telescopes set up and trained on different celestial objects of interest. They encourage people to get a closer look. Tonight is special. It's a perfect night to spend a few minutes enjoying the sky, enjoying the, the, the telescopes. I highly recommend that you get in a conversation with the folks that are running those telescopes. They're nice people. They're friendly. Unless you touch the telescope, then they're not very nice at all. <laughs> so it's a look but do not touch kind of experience. Uh, it's absolutely astonishing what you can see. As much as there might be a line of people behind you waiting to see what's in the telescope, don't let that line make you go too fast. And the reason why I say that is you're waiting and waiting and waiting. You get to the front of the line, you see Jupiter or Saturn, maybe for the first time, and you go, that's kind of neat, see you later. And that's not what you should do here. What you want to be doing is just savor the moment. Take a deep breath. You really need to just spend a few moments and appreciate fully what you're looking at. There were about 300 people at the star party I went to, and about seven or eight telescopes set up in a parking lot. Paul wasn't kidding about the lines. People were queued up like they were waiting to get into a movie. Are you the end of the line here? I'm not. I think. Are you guys the end of the line? What? Are you the end of the line here? I, I think we're in the line. The telescopes were pointed at Jupiter, Saturn, the moon, and some things called globular clusters. Yeah, so that's M13, which is a globular cluster. Okay, so that's the thing with hundreds of thousands of stars. Yes. Paul hopes that by taking the time to appreciate what you're seeing in the sky, you'll develop a deeper sense of perspective about your place in the larger picture. It takes you off of the earthbound focus that you have every day, and it puts your attention into space. And that's what I like. That's what I like about astronomy in general as well. It allows us to ponder our place in the universe in a very visceral way, in a very actual way, because especially at night, when you're looking up into the heavens, you are peering truly into the cosmos, truly into the depths of what is, uh, in the case of, of planets, you know, millions of miles away, in the case of stars, trillions of miles away, in the case of galaxies, another order of magnitude beyond that. And that's visible and available every night of the year. When you look up in the sky at night, what I, what I find is that we are able to, to viscerally and actually comprehend the grandeur of the universe. What happens in my daily life and everyone's daily life is we're naturally and appropriately earthbound. We're focused on the problems in front of us. We're focused on the, the civilization we inhabit with each other, living, getting along, dealing with crime, dealing with streets, dealing with urban issues, dealing with, with cultural issues, with, with global issues, with religion. That's all important and vital. We're all also just one common species inhabiting a planet that happens to be one of not hundreds or thousands, but millions or probably billions of planets in the universe, um, others of which may be inhabited too. Isn't that interesting? So to me, having the capacity to see a broader picture I believe actually will help more and more people to see beyond the important but yet at some level petty and trivial cultural differences between people in the world. So I, I am a fan of the, of the concept that by looking up at the sky, by having that deeper appreciation, by absorbing a little insight, 
that that allows anyone in their given day or week to sort of stop for a minute and reconsider their priorities and reconsider what's important. That sounds good. But what if stopping and seeing the broader picture causes you to be paralyzed by anxiety? There are those who will say to me, I feel very small because of what I see in the universe. It makes me feel insignificant or what we're doing here is ridiculous. Who cares? And maybe it, it gives them a bit of a of a fatalist perspective on the universe. And, and I don't think that should be the case, nor do I want that to be the case. So I'm never doing this with the intent to make someone, and I never say that during a talk. I never say, and therefore we're so insignificant because of what we see. What I love to talk about is our place in the cosmos, our place in the galaxy and the universe. And under a moderately dark sky, like up on Mount Tam, where you can see the Milky Way, we can see the band of the Milky Way. Um, I like to illuminate by looking up at the sky the actual spiral arms of the galaxy, which are perceptible. You can distinguish between the inner arms, the arm that we're in, and the outer arm beyond us. And by doing that, I'm able to provide people a perspective because we're on the inside looking around us and we're perceiving the Milky Way as this band. But if we look carefully, we can discern the layers of the band and recognize that we are in it. And then I can also guide them to understand, for example, where the center of the galaxy is, especially in the summer, it's visible. And then how we fit into the broader picture of our being a part of a supercluster that you can look at in the sky. You don't see it, but I can point in the part of the sky where it is. So for me, that's, that's um, something I can share. And it's something that is very deep. And, and for most people that are with me under the night sky, experiencing that together, it's very personal. And it evokes unpredictable images. I can't predict what everyone's thinking. And sometimes it's purely technical. Oh, well, how does that work? And what's the distance? And are we being drawn by a big black hole? That's cool to ask, and I enjoy the questions. And other times it's much deeper and much more personal. More about origin, which I think are the big picture questions that puzzle and challenge everyone, you know, in, in, when they look up in the universe. While Paul can rattle off the relative distance between the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, he's not immune to the visceral experience of just being blown away by the beauty of a sky full of stars. I, too, am captivated by just the raw images, by the raw, sheer beauty of what you can see. And there is a handful of celestial go-to objects that are the best, looking at the Moon and Jupiter and Saturn and the Orion Nebula and the Andromeda Galaxy. There's just something profoundly beautiful about those as, as a visual experience, purely as visual. And what I appreciate and enjoy about looking up on my own through a telescope or with binoculars or just naked eye viewing is that I'm looking at the real things. It's very profound to look into the universe and understand the raw beauty of what I see. I also enjoy the pure mathematics and science of what I'm looking at, understanding origin and understanding the Big Bang and the, the cosmological origin of what we're staring at. When Paul looks into the stars, he sees human history and its interaction with the cosmos. I imagine to myself the Egyptians predicting the flooding of the Nile by the rising of Sirius in the spring, or, or the early astronomers that were documenting and building up their understanding of what they were looking at by virtue of plain old tracking movement and making measurements and applying early form of mathematics and physics to try to interpolate and understand and predict even. And then what I also love is, is the 
series of discoveries that I've learned about in terms of the history of astronomy and our understanding of the universe that were built upon the ever-improving quality of telescopes and, and visual observation and eventually space-based observation. And, and being, if you will, a junior member of that club, watching movements over time and interpreting them in the same way that Galileo would have or Kepler would have, for me, that's really rewarding. I, I, I have this personal identification with heritage, I suppose, in the deepest sense of the heritage of all people who have attempted to unravel the mysteries of the universe by virtue of observation and scientific approach. And it's this scientific approach that's led us to learn mind-bending things about what we're looking at when we gaze into the stars. Everything in the sky, of course, that we're staring at is in the past. Whether it's the moon, which is one and a quarter seconds in the past, or the sun, which is eight minutes, or the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2.2 million years. What you're looking at may not even be there anymore. And it brings to heart and to reality for me that challenging question of what's real anyhow. I'm, I'm a little dumbfounded by that because it, it does bring about that complex idea that reality is only what you personally experience, that everything around us might not be real. This kind of conversation opens the mind to, to thinking about a bigger picture and to be acknowledging that the day-to-day -day problems we experience, the day-to-day -day things in life um, are important, but one facet of one's human experience. Contemplating the bigger picture isn't always comfortable. Humans have a long tradition of applying meaning to the seeming chaos above us. As human beings, when we look out into space, we, many people are drawn toward order. That chaos is a bit frightening, that chaos is a discomforting concept that when you're living on Earth, there's a lot of order to our daily patterns. There's a rising and setting of the, of the night sky, of the moon, of the sun. Um, oceans have tides that flow in predictable ways. So after you've been around for a few years, you start to get accustomed to, to order and, and patterns. And looking up at the sky, I totally appreciate the concept that it can be quite overwhelming and quite uh, discomforting to me to look up at it and have no capacity to know what I'm looking at. I do believe that it is a very comforting thing to look up at the sky and put order around groupings of stars that make familiar patterns. It brings order out of the chaos. What's beautiful about it, of course, is that that's a, a thousands of generations old hobby. It's, it's a practice that goes back to the beginning of, of recorded history in many ways. There have been attempts to group and organize celestial structures to accommodate one's spiritual beliefs to accommodate one's requirements to canoe from Tahiti to Hawaii and back to Tahiti again. Those kind of things are all dependent upon a way to discern and, and abstract out patterns that help to help you to understand. But like me, not everyone is driven to learn these patterns. And what's more, some people actively don't want to know. It feels great to know and it feels very uncomfortable for me not to know. But I'll contrast that with my wife, who prefers and actually enjoys the raw, chaotic, untamed wilderness of the sky, and actually doesn't want to know all the detail. And although it's interesting and she respects the fact that I want to share that, she wants to stay in the dark, literally and figuratively, about that and just 
look up at the sky and be overwhelmed by it every time she sees it and not worry about what's where and why. And for her, she points out to me that maybe other people don't want to know either. For some, that lack of understanding is where they want to stay. While Paul respects that some folks want to live in uneducated mystery, he's serious about reaching those who are open to learning about the parts of the universe we can see. Taking that earlier preacher metaphor a little further. I do something sometimes called sidewalk astronomy. And that's when you stand literally on a sidewalk somewhere with a telescope and people walk by and they look at you and they ask, what are you doing? And you say, I'm looking at Jupiter. Would you like to see it? And for most people, most of the time, it's a very wonderful moment. For them, it, it takes them out of their daily routine, as I said, of staring at the earth and looking at the ordinary and rather brings them to the extraordinary. Guerrilla urban astronomy is, is a real joy to be there and be present and share the sky in some limited way for hundreds, if not thousands of people in one evening to me is extraordinary. I, I, I love that. I, it's, it's a crazy, wonderful thing to do. A further part of Paul's mission is to get people to look up wherever they are and realize that regardless of conditions in the sky, the stars are up there. There's always something to see, even if you're in a city. You have to put yourself in a place where you're best equipped to see the maximum amount if that's your goal for the night. If you're the average person who walks outside at night and you come from an illuminated home or business, your eyes are not ready to receive what's up there. So there could be a lot of stars and there are a lot of stars, even in an urban setting, but your eyes are not ready for it because you just came from an illuminated place. And furthermore, if you stand on a brightly lit street and look up, you're still not going to see much because your eyes are not able to perceive what's there, even though it's there. But literally what I do with people when we're out in an urban setting, I'll say, you know, put your hand out and block that nasty street light, and now let's all look up together at that thing over there. And when someone puts their hand up, even if sometimes they're putting their hand up over the moon because it's pretty bright sometimes too, they'll say, oh, now I see that star, whereas I didn't see it a second ago, just by blocking the light with your hand. So it's that level of awareness that I wish to, to convey to people that, you know, don't wait for that big trip to Death Valley. Go out now. You'll have a good time. It's all there to see. Just, just don't hold back. Look at what you can see right now from wherever you are. Look at what you can see from wherever you are so I don't have to feel silly when I get excited about the 50 stars I can see over my house. Those are what I've got, I'll take them. But I'll seek out the real deal too, the dark sky, the Milky Way, and appreciate it. I finally did see it, the Milky Way. It was a few months after the sandstorm in Death Valley, a couple of months after the star party. I was in a motorboat on a mountain lake, and my friend stopped the boat right in the middle. He turned off the engine, and all I could hear was the sound of the water lapping against the boat, some distant crickets. I didn't have to look for it. There was no, I think I can see it. A glowing, shimmering band stretched across the sky from end to end. As I tried to make sense of what I was seeing, I felt dizzy and impossibly small. But also, something about it was like looking into a mirror or seeing an aerial map with a view of your hometown that you've never seen before. That's where the comfort comes in. The reminder that I am small and the universe is giant. And from there, it's not a big leap to remember that all I need to do is be kind and appreciate the love in my life and the beauty around me. It may sound a little corny, but really, it's everything.
You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. You can find more information about the music in this episode at nocturnepodcast.org. If you like what you hear, rate us and write a review on iTunes. Also, please support Nocturne on Patreon or PayPal. You can find easy links to do that at our website. Nocturne is a proud founding member of The Herd, a collective of truly great storytelling podcasts from around North America. Check them all out at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening.